Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Journey to the West is a novel that I think I can say is at the back of most Chinese minds in ways similar to how Shakespeare, the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and the Bible are to those of us in the West. Just as if we've never read much of these three works, our behavior and speech are affected greatly by them. Journey to the West has massive influence throughout Asia to even those who've never read one of its pages. Joining us back by the woodpile today is independent researcher and steward of the Journey to the West research blog, Jim McClanahan, who's going to help us get a good grasp of the epic novel. We start off by Mr. McClanahan giving us a quick plot synopsis of the 16th century classic. At its most basic level, uh, the novel has to do with the Buddha feels that China has become an immoral nation and therefore sends the Bodhisattva Guanyin to seek out a pilgrim from the east who will make the great journey to India in order to retrieve salvation-bestowing scriptures. A young Buddhist monk is chosen, and along the way he takes on four monstrous disciples, including a monkey spirit, a pig spirit, a river spirit, and a dragon turned into a horse who protects him on the journey. These disciples defend their master against leagues of demons and spirits who wish to eat his flesh. After countless tribulations, the group completes their mission and are welcomed into the Buddhist paradise as a reward. So that's that's basically it. I do have a question about how it was perceived that China had become immoral. So in Buddhist terms, what did that mean? And do you know historically what was going on for someone to say something like that? Well, the novel doesn't always follow a like historical timeline, or it doesn't really give reasons. A lot of times, it's it's kind of like the the popular meme, meme, like something happens for reasons. Like the novel will just give a reason. So, uh, like historically, I'll, I'll discuss more about this later. But you know, there was an actual monk who went to India to get scriptures. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the novel just tries to provide a reason for why the monk would have to travel from China to India to retrieve those scriptures. So the novel just says, oh, China is immoral. Uh, it's sinful. So it needs the, the Buddhist teachings to lead it to the right path. Did these particular scriptures that they were going after, were they scriptures that had never made it to China, according to the myth? Well, historically, yeah, a lot of the uh, of the scriptures that were taken back to China from India were not available mm-hmm. at that time. So the, the monk, I think he brought back, I, I'm not sure of the exact number, but like 600 different documents mm-hmm. uh, that he, he himself actually translated from like the original language into Chinese and then disseminated it throughout China. But Buddhism had been in China by this point. Right. Right. Buddhism arrived in China, I think, around the first century. 
and then、uh, spread from there. So, can you introduce to us the main characters of the book? We'll start with Sun Wukong.、Uh, his name means "monkey aware of emptiness."、Uh, he's the real star of the novel. In fact, the first seven chapters focus exclusively on his birth and misadventures. The Monkey King, as he is called, is born from a celestial stone high atop the Flower Fruit Mountain, a magic island paradise located well to the east of China. He becomes the student of a Budo Taoist sage and learns not only the secrets of immortality but also magic and martial arts. He soon thereafter acquires a magic, size-changing iron staff with which he uses to wage a war against the celestial realm. And proclaiming himself the great sage equaling heaven, but his rebellion is eventually quelled by the Buddha, who imprisons the indestructible monkey beneath a mountain for his crimes. Five hundred years later, the repentant immortal is called upon to protect the aforementioned pilgrim on his journey to India. Tripitaka is the next one.、Uh, Tripitaka is basically the Chinese name for a type of or a genre of Buddhist scriptures. It's called the three. I think the translation is the three baskets. I will mention later that he is based off of a historical monk from the seventh century.、Uh, so Tripitaka's story is told in chapters nine to twelve. So he's a like a fleshly embodiment of scripture. That's just the the nickname or the name that was given to him in the story. He's he's human, but he's actually a reincarnation of one of the Buddha's disciples. I'll I'll mention that in a few minutes. Okay. So his story is told in chapters nine to twelve.、Uh, that his cycle opens with his young parents being accosted by river bandits on their way to a new province where the father was to take up a government position. A bandit murders him and takes his post and his pregnant wife for his own. The wife fears that the bandit will kill her child, so soon after his birth, the mother sets him afloat in a basket like the baby Moses. He is found and raised in a Buddhist monastery where he is ordained as a monk. Mother and son are eventually reunited 18 years later, and the bandit turned government official is arrested for his crimes. Not only that, the father is miraculously brought back to life by heaven, and sometimes later, the monk is chosen by Guanyin to be the pilgrim to retrieve these scriptures from India.、Uh, what's interesting is that the novel drops hints throughout the narrative that Tripitaka is actually the reincarnation of a celestial being called the Golden Cicada Elder, who is the Buddha's second disciple. He was expelled from heaven for ten lifetimes, which is, I think, pretty severe,、uh, for dozing <laughs> off during the Buddha's sermon. Uh, he, yeah, uh, he is destined to suffer eighty-one tribulations, which mostly entail his constant hounding by demons, before his sin is absolved. Which, again, being hounded by eighty-one demons for ten lifetimes—that's just. That's really super strict. Pretty harsh, yeah. How many times、yeah. have we fallen asleep in church or wherever? Right, right, yeah. And I, I wasn't, you know, doomed to hell or anything for <laughs> a certain period of time. Yeah. 
it is funny so, how Buddhism gets a, a better press in the West, I think, than uh, than it does in the right. East. <laughs> right, exactly. So during those ten lifetimes, the monk, he lives in religious piety and cultivation. So as a result of that, his body acquires a certain purity to it. And this explains why all of these monsters want want to eat him, because they believe it will give them eternal life. And that may make you think of the Christian Eucharist, where, you know, the transubstantiation of the bread into flesh and having to do with immortality of the soul and everything. So it's kind of pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of common themes, I guess, which probably in all religions, but I do want to talk about that at some point. Right, right, yeah. That's great. Okay, so let's see. The next one is the white dragon horse. Uh, he doesn't really have a name. Uh, he's just referred to as horse throughout the, the narrative. Uh, he appears in chapter 15 as a, a river dragon who eats Tripitaka's original horse and is forced to become the monk's new steed. So, you know, dragons are magical beings and they can take on different forms. So Samuel Kong beats him up and says, you know, you better turn into a horse or some bad stuff will happen. The dragon is originally the son of the Western Sea Dragon King. Like So in Chinese mythology, each of the four seas is ruled by a dragon king. So the, the Western Ocean uh, Dragon King is this dragon's particular father. The character was actually set to be executed for setting fire to his father's highly treasured uh, jewel of some sort, and he set it aflame, but Guan Yin saves him and recruits the young dragon for the Buddhist mission. Uh, he's a very, very minor character and does not play much of a part in the narrative. Mm-hmm. And then we have uh, Jubajia, which means pig of eight precepts, which is a Buddhist concept. Uh, he appears in chapter 19 as the monstrous son-in-law of a human family whom he had tricked into letting him marry their daughter. He initially disguised his monstrous pig form with magic, but when the family learned of his demonic pedigree, he stole their daughter and locked her into a room. Uh, Samuel Kong eventually sets her free, and the funny thing is is that he dis- magically disguises himself as the daughter. So there's like a whole uh, episode where Samuel Kong is trying to act you know, like a sexy young wife. Right. It's it's like completely hilarious. That's actually uh, one of my favorite scenes. I think there's a part where Sun Wukong, as the girl says, because uh, Pigsy wants to have intercourse. And he, right, right. And uh, Sun Wukong's like, uh, don't bother me right now. I, I have to use the bathroom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the translation yeah, yeah. I have is actually quite a bit more crass. But <laughs> Right, right, yeah. It, it is hilarious. Yeah. So Monkey transforms into her and... Eventually, he reveals his true form, and because he's so powerful, the the pig demon is like totally scared and, and runs away. And there is a, a brief confrontation between the two, but ultimately, Guan Yin uh, pacifies uh, Jubajia and recruits him for the mission. The reader learns that he is actually the reincarnation of a former celestial called Marshal Tianpeng who was exiled to the mortal world for drunkenly flirting with the moon goddess. And obviously, <laughs> learning that and, and knowing about him stealing the daughter and everything, he's 
he's a very uh, perverted character throughout the novel and likes to drink, flirt with women. He's very gluttonous, so he's, he's kind of the, he serves as the walking embodiment of gluttony and lust. Uh, the next character is Sha Wu Jing, which means sand, aware of purity. And the word sand will, I'll explain that more in a little bit. Uh, so he appears in chapter 22 as a ghoulish spirit who attacks the, the pilgrims when they attempt to ford the massive Flowing Sands River. And I'm going to say that again, the Flowing Sands River, that's important. Mm -hmm. uh, the monster soon finds that he is no match for Monkey's great strength, and so he retreats to the depths of the river. Uh, being weak to the water element, Samuel Kong works with Chu Baijia to drive the monster to the surface, only to see him retreat once more. This game of cat and mouse happens over and over again until Guan Yin calls the ghoul to the surface, having formally pacified and recruited him to the mission. The reader learns the creature, uh, who is given the name Sha Wu Jing, is the reincarnation of a former celestial called the Curtain Lifting General, who was exiled to the mortal world for accidentally breaking a priceless crystal vase belonging to a high deity. So you had uh, originally said privately that, that you thought that the addition of Sha Wu Jing to the narrative was... Uh, seems out of place to a lot of people. Right. While I was reading oh. it, I kept thinking, why is this guy here? So maybe you can tell me why I wonder that. Okay, so I, I have a feeling that this fact is going to surprise a lot of people. All right. Sha Wu Jing actually has the longest association with the story cycle out of all three of the main disciples, even longer than some will call Huh. So there is a 7th century biography of the historical monk Xuanzang on whom Tripitaka is based. This refers to an obscure desert spirit who helps the monk find fresh water. Later Tong Dynasty material gives him the name the Spirit of the Deep Sands and places his domain in the Flowing Sands Desert. Hmm. So that, that is actually an, the old name that was commonly used for the harsh desert environment of China's northwestern region. So you may recall the river from the novel was called the Flowing Sands River. And so it was really funny is that, you know, if you go back uh, far enough, you have a desert spirit who was then transformed into a river spirit over time, just basically based on the name of that location. The Flowing Sands Desert became the Flowing Sands River. So material from the Song Dynasty describes this deity as having a monstrous appearance, which is likely based on esoteric Buddhist deities. A lot of these wrathful protector deities uh, are very monstrous in appearance. They wear skulls uh, around their neck, which also explains why in the narrative, Sha Wu Jing wears the, the skull uh, necklace around him, his neck. So this monstrous appearance then led to his appearance or his portrayal as an evil monster in a 13th century precursor of Journey to the West. And I'll talk about that in a few minutes. But yeah, it's when I first learned that years ago, I was totally blown away that even though he does seem out of place, he has been with the narrative since the very beginning because the historical monk lived 
during the 7th century. Well, I'll tell you why I think he was out of place. But first of all, I'll say, I, I feel like the novel, even though it's children in China love it, because there's lots of fighting and killing and, and uh, clever uh, puzzles to get out of trouble, and, and it's funny at times. But right. to me, the, the novel is about redemption, because mm-hmm. at least with the three main characters, well, I guess all of them, all five, but they're all trying to be re- redeemed or they're trying to be perfected. So with mm-hmm. the example of the monk, the Tripitaka, you know, he's a coward. He's a f- screams like a little girl whenever some yes. demon comes yes, out. Yes, he does. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's the Buddhist, you know, monk, the master, you know. And then, of course, Sun Wukong is uh, got a temper problem, like you wouldn't believe. Mm-hmm. He, he kills first and asks questions later. Right. And then, of course, Chu Bajie, he is, like you said, uh, a slave to his senses and is a glutton and uh, a rake. And he carries a rake, <laughs> no pun intended. Exactly, yes. And they're all, it seems like through all these trials, eventually they will become uh, purified enough to become, I forget how you say it, maybe to get enlightenment or nirvana or, or just be redeemed, right. you know. So what say you? I mean, I've read a lot of stuff and, you know, one theory is... Of course, this happened after the like inclusion of all of the of the characters. But there's one theory that each of the characters represents a certain aspect of the monk's personality. So, monkey is anger. You have Pigsy or Chubajia. He is gluttony. You have Shawujing, who is uh, like stupidity or complacency. So uh, that's just, that's one interpretation. Well, see, okay, that explains, I didn't catch on to that. That's why I thought that, right. the, that he was out of place, because I guess I didn't notice his weaknesses. Because right. the, the other three, their weaknesses are so obvious, and mm-hmm. they, exactly. it gets them in so much trouble that I just never noticed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, now I know. Thank you, teacher. Oh, no problem. <laughs> Can you talk about the history of the the book itself? Now, the version that's been passed down to us is not the original version, as you've mentioned. Just explain how it came about and who the author okay. was. Okay, so while the novel is commonly attributed to the 16th century government official and author Wu Chang'an, the debate about its authorship has actually yet to be settled. For instance, Wu actually died 10 years before the novel was anonymously published in 1592. And if I remember correctly, he wasn't associated with the novel until it was either the the late 19th century or the early 20th century. One reason for the attribution is that a book called Journey to the West is listed among his writings, but there are actually several other people who have books with that similar title. For example, during the 17th century, a noted collector of popular folk tales attributed our novel to Chiu Chuji, a 13th century Taoist master whose disciple is known to have also written a book called Journey of the West. It records Chiu's journey from China to Central Asia to meet Genghis Khan. 
So no one is 100% sure who the author was. Whoever that person was, I prefer to refer to them in my own work as the quote-unquote author compiler as the story cycle predates the published novel by centuries, first appearing during the Song Dynasty, which is 960 to 1279. Uh, the earliest printed edition of the novel, which is called Tripitaka of the Great Tongue Procures the Scriptures, is dated to the late 13th century. It likely served as a prompt for oral storytellers, and that's where the, the whole story cycle began, was through oral storytelling. Sure. Some listeners may be surprised to learn that the story cycle was actually popular in 14th century Korea. For example, there's a Korean primer on colloquial Chinese from this time, and I don't know Korean, so I apologize to any Korean <laughs> listeners. Uh, this primer is called the Pak Tongsa On Hai, and there is a, uh, a story within it. So basically, this primer... It uses uh, representations of people to pass on information. So there's one of the stories, there's these two Buddhist monks that are talking with each other. And one of them talks about how, how great Journey to the West is. And uh, the monk in particular says, and I, and I really like this, the Journey to the West is lively. It is good reading when you are feeling gloomy. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, you had asked me before if there was any, any factual material in the novel. Yeah. Uh, and actually, the, the main theme of the book of a Buddhist monk traveling to India is based in history. The young pilgrim in the novel is loosely based on a monk named Xuanzang, who lived from 602 to 664. He is famous for having defied an imperial prohibition against foreign travel and left China in 627. Over the course of some 17 years, he traveled through Central Asia and India, learning Sanskrit and gathering hundreds of sutras, uh, or Buddhist uh, scripture. He returned to China in 645 a hero and went about translating all of the material that he brought back. He is considered one of the most prolific translators of Buddhist sutras in history. 俺老孙没有一件趁手的兵器，怎么能教你们好好操练呢？哎，真是扫兴的很呢。Can you share a, a particular episode that's kind of indicative of the novel? I can give you like a very very brief overview of, of one episode, but there is a poem from this episode that I think is very indicative of not only the world in which these characters live, but also of the personality and status of Sun Wukong. Uh, like I said, he is, he's like the, the shining star in the novel, even though the novel itself is, you know, based on the historical travels of Xuanzang, you know, the literary version of that monk is, as you said, he's whiny, he, he, he's easily scared, so he's nothing like the historical monk. I mean, it's, it's very brave to, you know, leave your native country and travel to another land where you don't even know the language. So uh, the particular episode that I want to discuss happens from chapters 56 to 58. At some point, there is a, an imposter, Sun Wukong, who happens, and he knocks 
the monk off of his horse. And there's like this back and forth where the imposter monkey does bad stuff and then everybody ends up blaming the real monkey for it. And uh, monkey just keeps on getting more and more frustrated. Well, he ends up separating from the group because he's so angry. So at some point, monkey has to battle this imposter, but they're too evenly matched. And not only that, they look exactly alike. And not, e not even Guan Yin can tell them apart. And so uh, the two of them go to the Western Paradise where the Buddha lives. And the Buddha uses his you know, all-seeing eye to disguise the, the right from the wrong. And you know, he points out that the imposter is actually a six-eared macaque. So a macaque is just... It's a genus of monkeys, so people may, might have heard of a rhesus macaque. It's, it's like the most generic kind of monkey that you can think of living in Asia. So like the, the Japanese snow monkeys, those are actually macaques. It's just that, hmm. that type of monkey. So the six-eared macaque is one of four types of spiritual primates, including Sun Wukong. So Sun Wukong is listed as like the stone monkey, just the magical kind. So eventually, Sun Wukong gets the upper hand and ends up killing this six-eared macaque. But the, the one thing that I really want to highlight from this is during the, the troubled time between the real Sun Wukong and his master, the master claims you know, that he is going to uh, submit a formal complaint against Sun Wukong, and he'll get in trouble. And so Sun Wukong actually recites this poem uh, in order to show how much of a big shot he is throughout the entire universe. Mm -hmm. So the poem goes, The Jade Emperor knows me, the Devarajas follow me, the eight constellations fear me, the nine luminaries are afraid of me, the prefectural, district, and municipal deities kneel before me, equal to heaven, the guardian of Mount Tai dreads me, the ten kings of hell once served as my attendants. The five grand deities have been my houseboys. Whether they be five bureaus of the three realms or the sundry gods of the ten quarters, they regard me as an intimate friend. Mm -hmm. So I want to explain just a few things. So obviously the Jade Emperor is the ruler of the cosmos within the novel. Then you have the Diva Rajas. Those are very important guardians of like the four gates of heaven. The 28 constellations are basically all of the stars in the sky. Then you have, I, I won't go through everything, but right. like this is super, super neat. So the nine luminaries, and I'll read that part again. The nine luminaries are afraid of me. So for a little perspective, the nine luminaries are the sun, the moon, the planets Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, and Saturn, and then there's two, it has to do with uh, constellations and everything, but there are two other planets called Rahu and Ketu. So basically, you have the personifications of our solar system, they wet themselves around some <laughs> I just think that's hilarious. Well, he could have had a career in hip-hop. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So I just, I absolutely love that poem, because he's just basically talking about how awesome he is you know because he knows all of these deities throughout the universe and half of them are afraid of him
I first moved to China, I knew some Chinese literature, mostly Taoist literature, but um, I was fairly unaware of Journey to the West. And mm-hmm. I remember when I discovered, like, okay, there's these four great novels that everyone has to read. And so mm-hmm. that was just the first one I picked. And then, you know, all of a sudden I realized, like, Sun Wukong was everywhere. I just never had noticed uh, that that's who that was because he's a cultural phenomenon. He's used to exactly. uh, teach kids how to you know read and write and to sell you know ice cream or yogurt. If you don't mind, if you can possibly do this, convey to folks listening what an impact Journey to the West has had on the Chinese culture. You know, you mentioned that there are you know other Chinese classics. So altogether, there are the four great classics of China. Uh, apart from Journey to the West, there's the Three Kingdoms, there's the Water Margin, and there's the Story of the Stone. So, as I mentioned earlier, the story cycle had been popular for centuries, and you know it it culminated or, or it was combined in the Ming Dynasty into its current form. Uh, but there were prior to that, there were all sorts of I had mentioned the the storytelling prompt, and there were all sorts of plays during the, the late Yuan dynasty into the Ming dynasty. So obviously, Sun Wukong, he became the quintessential spirit of rebelliousness, and a lot of people latched onto that. And he actually became worshipped as a god. So starting in the 17th century, actually in the, the southern Chinese province of Fujian, and spreading outwards, his cult spread throughout southern China, Taiwan, Malaysia, and Singapore. And up through the present day, he is worshipped as a uh, an important uh, like exorcist. He's because that's basically all he does in the novel is you know destroy monsters. He's also considered like a physician, like he has the power to to heal, which actually takes place in the novel. There's a particular episode where he heals a king using traditional Chinese medicine. Also, Jubajie uh, in Taiwan, I'm not sure about uh, Fujian, but I know in, at least in Taiwan, he's actually worshipped as the god of prostitution and gambling. Um, <laughs> yeah. That makes yeah, sense. I, yeah, that, I thought that was hilarious. You know, the novel has been used as a morality tale for centuries uh, up into the present, and one thing that maybe a lot of people may not know is that uh, Chairman Mao during the Cultural Revolution was actually a huge fan of Sun Wukong and even likened himself to the character in his poetry. Hmm. During the 1960s, there was a, a play that was eventually made into a movie, uh, and it's based on a, um, a episode from the novel called The Monkey King Subdues the White Bone Demon. And basically in the story, you have this uh, disembodied spirit who keeps on trying to kidnap and eat the monk Tripitaka. And every time that she appears, she takes on a, a different form. So the first time she's this beautiful girl, monkey sees through the uh, disguise and seemingly kills her with his staff. And she has this magical ability to leave a corpse uh, where she once was. And this completely freaks out uh, the monk who recites the uh, magic chant, which makes the the only way that he can control the monkey king or anyone else can control the monkey king because he's so powerful. So he chants this uh, spell, which makes this golden hoop around the monkey king's head tighten. 
So that happens again and again where, so the monkey king kills the young girl, she leaves a corpse, then she transforms into the young girl's mother and says, oh, I'm looking for my daughter. And then monkey kills her, and then the monk tightens the use the uses the chant again, and it just goes on uh, where she leaves the corpse, then becomes the father, and then eventually he's he's able to kill the 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 spirit, uh, but again this this strains the relationship between master and disciple. Well, um, Chairman Mao and the communists during the 20th century actually took note of that; they appropriated this uh, this play as communist propaganda. Uh, so um, in the play, Sun Wukong represents Mao Zedong, and then the, the white bone demon, while it first represented imperialism, came to be associated with Soviet revisionists bowing to imperialism. I know this is like a, a super, I mean, I don't know a great amount about you know communist history, but I, I find this particularly uh, fascinating. And then we have Tripitaka. He uh, was originally associated with revisionists known as Edward Bernstein and Nikita Khrushchev, but then later came to represent the middle of the rotors within the Chinese Communist Party. So the whole episode with Monkey killing the spirit and then having the band tightened around his head was symbolic of Mao's struggle to placate the Communist Party while uh, trying to battle the evils of revisionists. Well, it's funny uh, you mentioned that about the white bone demon. I was somewhere in China and I was with a friend and we saw a picture of Jiang Qing, Chairman Mao's fourth and mm -hmm. final wife, and she right. muttered the phrase, she's a white bone demon. And I right. thought, uh -huh. I thought yeah. wow, huh. So yeah. it's funny that that mantle got placed under her. As a bit of a history nerd, I'm a little intolerant at times of movies or presentations of some historical time period. And I understand they got to take liberty sometimes, but when it's just out and out false or has little to do with some original book or some actual event in history, I just turn it off. I'm just that anal about it. And there are several versions of Journey to the West that are out there. Probably the most accurate one I saw was a TV show, but when I was teaching a Chinese language and culture class to some American kids, I showed them just a clip of the TV show, which was accurate, but the special effects were so cheesy and antiquated. One of the students commented that it was cringeworthy, and I don't think they got the greatness of the book. But Yeah, the, the 1986 TV show. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I know that considering that the novel that we have is basically a mashup of older stories, if there ever was one, and as you said, appropriating so many other stories and changing them drastically. I can't complain too much, but still, I do. What's your take on all the different adaptations that are out there? Okay, so I think the, the reason for the constant flow of Journey to the West-related media 
is which inevitably will focus on Sun Wukong is the fact that he is a public domain character who can be freely adapted in art, comics, novels, plays, TV shows, movies, and video games without having to pay royalties to any original creator. Many, many people know and love his adventures, so this will guarantee anything based on Monkey will have a popular following. As far as my favorite adaptations go, I think you cannot beat the 1986 TV show. Obviously, the, the graphics, even back then, I think were extremely low quality, and that's just, e even up to this point, Chinese TV shows, even if they have a large budget, they usually spend that budget on uh, clothing, obviously, and, and weapons, and you know, probably driving out to these gorgeous vistas to, to video everything, but not a lot of money actually goes into special effects. So, yeah. Um, so I equate the 86 TV show with like the old Doctor Who episodes, which they, right, right. they're still charming. And you just have to get past the fact that he's fighting, a, you know, a, a monster made out of cardboard or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the reason that I like the 86 is obviously not only is it, you know, really accurate to the novel itself, but you can't beat the acting of especially the person playing Sun Wukong. He's originally from a family who has done Sun Wukong and Chinese opera for generations. So they, they live, eat, and sleep Sun Wukong. So his performance, the... The voice, the the body postures, just the overall attitude, it's just, it's perfect. And then, of course, you have the other characters. They, they you know, the, there's a lot of chemistry there that a lot of other uh, adaptations, I don't think that they have it as well. I also love, absolutely love, the 1965 animated classic Uproar in Heaven. That is an amazing movie. Uh, it basically covers from Monkey's birth to just... Uh, it, it does not cover his defeat by the Buddha. So it's just basically, you know, a love letter to Monkey about how awesome he is and how he can beat up everybody. But the animation is gorgeous. I'm not a big fan of a lot of modern depictions of Sun Wukong. Or, or I should say modern during the West media, which yeah. obviously, like I said, will focus on Sun Wukong. To go to your earlier point, they've taken so much creative license with, mm -hmm. they just use the characters, but they don't use the story or the themes. And I, right. I, I know that there's a couple that you could probably find on the streaming services. And I tried to look at a, some of them and they look great, but they are you know, not based in any kind of right. anything with a book yes. or the legend. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they deviate way too much from the novel. Uh, for example, a lot of media tries to give Sun Wukong a love interest. The 2014 Monkey King movie with Donnie Yen, they gave him a love interest, which is not in the book. Right. And then uh, another thing they do that's even worse, they try to get a super handsome actor to play him, and they don't even bother to cover his face. Or at least, you know, they... Well, he'll be handsome until he's in battle and then he transforms into, you know, a monkey or whatever. But 
there have been numerous TV shows where it's just just the straight up human with the the headband. The only thing that separates him from just a regular uh, warrior with a club is the headband. That's it. Right. So I'm I'm not a big fan of that. And uh, that leads me to my next point. They never get the depiction right. They always depict him as the size of a man, which obviously due to uh, constraints with special effects. I, I understand that there where they can't portray a realistic looking monkey with the technology. And then also going back hundreds of years, people doing Chinese opera, obviously if you're going to depict the monkey King, you need a, a human actor. So I'm, th that's a, that's okay. Sometimes in like, say there's the smite video game where he is portrayed as this, huge hulking brute with muscles and that doesn't actually match how he is described in the novel he's actually described in the novel as a rhesus macaque who is less than four feet tall so if you actually the stephen chow movie the uh, journey to the west conquering the demons that actually has what i consider to be the most accurate depiction of of sun wukong ever captured in a live action movie. I'm pretty sure they had like a child playing the character, mm -hmm. but um, the fact that he was short and I, I know that actually freaked out a lot of people like, you know, what is this little demon looking thing? Mm -hmm. uh, but that matches how he's described in the novel as being super short. And it's kind of comical that you have this sort of cosmic being that's super powerful and all of these gods are afraid of him, but he's so tiny. Right. Uh, but for that movie, I'm in general, I'm a huge Stephen Chow fan. Yeah. Um, when I was in the military, I, I literally, up to that point, I had all of his movies on uh, either DVD or VCD. Mm -hmm. Like when I was in high school, I had a friend who showed me one of his movies and I just fell in love with it. And so I had all of his movies and then... Uh, you know, one of the earlier Journey to the West films he did, or he did two of them, they were called A Chinese Odyssey. It was a two-part movie that came out in 1995. I know I had mentioned before that I hate it when they give uh, Sun Wukong a love interest, but in that movie, they do that, but they did it the right way. And honestly, I think everything that's followed since then copied that, but in an, in an inferior way. Uh, so in the movie, in the beginning of the first one, uh, Sun Wukong gets mad and he kills the monk, and then he gets monkey gets killed. I think by Guan Yin, like she crushes him with. It's been so long since I last seen it. I think she crushes him, and so he gets reincarnated as a human bandit, and so this human bandit is living in this world. He's surrounded by all these demons and everything. And he ends up falling in love with this girl who's actually an immortal, uh, from preview who previously lived, I think in the Buddha's paradise or something like that, you know, so the romance starts and then we don't actually get to see the monkey King until the, towards the end, like the last 20 minutes or so of the second movie. Basically he goes into this cave he finds the Monkey King staff and the headband and, you know, he forsakes his humanity in order to save his master who has been kidnapped by the Bull Demon King. So he puts on 
the uh, the headband and becomes the monkey. And I actually, I really love Stephen Chow's uh, portrayal because he walks the the line between comedy and murderous intent. That's mm-hmm. you know the way that monkey is described in the novel is that he'll do something to to make you to laugh, but if you don't laugh at it, he'll kill you. Right. <laughs> like that's just that that's just kind of how his character is in the book. And Stephen Chow does a really good job, and also the the main actor from the 1986 TV show does a wonderful, he walks that line as well. So when the character changes from the human bandit into the monkey king, you know, those feelings carry over. And so I think they did that romance right. But Stephen Chow's more recent Journey to the West movies, although, uh, like you said, they're, they're visually stunning, they, they've, to me personally, they lack something. And I think it's because Stephen Chow is behind the camera. His his most recent movies they they're just not as funny. They don't have that oomph right. that his movies from the 1990s had. 师傅，师傅，快救我出来吧！既是菩萨指点，我自当收你为徒。可是我没有斧凿，如何救你出来呢？不劳师傅费力，只要师傅上山把如来佛祖的压铁揭下来，我就能出得来了。啊啊啊啊、师傅在这儿，哦、啊、哦，在那儿呢，在那儿。You mentioned off recording about that you were conducting a survey. Do you want to talk about yeah, that? Yeah. Oh yeah, sure.、Um, I am conducting a worldwide survey, like I made a、uh, just like a, a Google Doc survey that asks very basic questions of. Have you read Journey to the West, like all the way through? If not,、uh, how much have you read? Who is your favorite character? Where are you from, and what's your age? I think right now I have、uh, just over nine hundred responses. I plan to write an article based on the responses, but I would like to have, preferably, like into the thousands of responses before I do anything. What are you finding so far? I should state、uh, first and foremost that most of the responses have come from North America and Europe, but I、uh, have gotten a lot of responses from you know outside those regions and from Eastern Asia. That is what I really want. I hope that the answers you know balloon drastically. But what I've found. Is that an overwhelming、uh, amount of people have not read the novel? But in correlation to that, there is an overwhelming preference for Sun Wukong. Like right now, out of the over 900、uh, responses, Sun Wukong has 60% of the votes for the most popular character.、Mm-hmm. The reason for this, I think, is obviously not a lot of people read anymore. They get their exposure to various forms of media, you know, whether it's movies or TVs, video games, the the kind of stuff that I I had mentioned before. You know the the responses that I've gotten from people from Asia. You know, obviously a lot of them have read the novel or at least portions of them, but there's still a, a high percentage who have not read the novel. Outside of the survey, I've met people who have not read the novel. And their exposure was either through someone reading the novel to them as a child, or they、uh, watched the 1986 TV show.
the huge number of people who have never read it but love Simulcon. Like, for instance, there's a lot of video games. There's a website, actually, that keeps track of the number of games in which Summel Kong has appeared over, you know, the last few decades. And I think there's nearly 50 video games that Summel Kong has appeared in, wow. which is a huge number, obviously. So these people, like I said before, they're, they're getting their exposure to the characters or episodes through other places other than the novel. In that sense, because Sun Wukong is so popular, he has become a meme uh, in the original sense as created by Richard Dawkins to where he has life and the public consciousness outside the novel and completely separated from it. Mm-hmm. That's basically what the survey is about. I just I want to know what the public pers- the modern public perception of the novel is and, um, you know, I'm just exploring the, the whole uh, meme aspect, and I will at some point write up something about it. Okay, so my final question is, how did you, an American, a Buckeye, right? Yeah, yes, I'm from Ohio. Yeah, uh, <laughs> discover a ancient Chinese novel, and where did it take you? So I've always been a big fan of mythology as far back as I can remember. Uh, I particularly enjoyed reading the adventures of the the Greek and Norse pantheons, and I actually have to thank my my interest in it to Mrs. Johnson my fifth grade history teacher. I think up to that point, I thought mythology was cool and I read it about it a little bit, but she really got me interested in it. And originally, uh, like her big thing was Egyptian mythology. Uh, and she loved it so much that she even did the, the little, uh, she took the eyeliner and did the little curls at the, the outer, uh, outside of her eyes and on the inside, like the eye of raw. Mm. And, uh, I, to me, that just, I, there were no other teachers who were like that, you know, because I was, I'm from Ohio, but I actually, uh, went, attended school from middle school up through high school in Tennessee. And so that was very, that was new and exciting for me to see somebody like her to stand out. So she loved Egyptian mythology and, so from there, I moved on to other other pantheons. Well, uh, my mom knew that I loved mythology, and at some point she bought me this massive coffee table book uh, of world mythology that I carried with me everywhere. And there was an entry for this strange character that I had never heard of named Sun Wukong. I didn't know him, but something about it was quite familiar. He reminded me of my favorite anime hero, Son Goku from the Dragon Ball franchise. And I think there were a lot of people uh, who have come upon Journey to the West through Dragon Ball like I did. So I was a very naive child, and I thought, wait a minute, this monkey has to be a knockoff of my beloved Saiyan. For instance, both have monkey features, they fly on clouds and they wield extending staffs. Uh, but luckily, 
uh, I was humbled to learn, you know, years later that the flow of influence actually went in the opposite direction. So Goku is actually based on Sun Wukong. Uh, Goku's full name is Sun Goku, and that's actually the Japanese transliteration of the, and it's the same Chinese characters of Sun Wukong. In 2001, while serving in the U.S. Army 82nd Airborne Division, I purchased the W.J.F. Jenner four-volume green box set of Journey to the West, and I immediately fell in love with the, the character and his adventures. And I will say that the gold standard in translation is the Anthony C.U. 2012 revised edition. So I'll say that again, Anthony C. So the C is just C period U, Y-U. It's amazing. It is packed full of hundreds of pages of end notes, which describe the, the history and the folklore and the religion of everything that's, that's mentioned in the novel. And during the early days of my research, I actually relied on those footnotes, I would use those as a stepping stone uh, to move on to other things that maybe uh, other researchers have, you know, not published about. But anyway, so I, I read the WJF Jenner version. It was amazing. I loved it. I was in my early 20s at the time, and I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. You know what? I'm going to write my own story. And so I took a lot of uh, stuff from the novel and decided to make my own immortal character who battled demons. I, I think he was a immortal who fought with like a peach wood sword, which if anybody knows anything about uh, Taoism is considered like a very pure weapon that hurts ghosts, what have you. But in order to make the, the story more authentic, I decided to research more about Chinese history and religion and the more I researched, I found, okay, well, Chaya was influenced by, let's say, India. And then I would research stuff about India, and I was like, oh, okay, well, India was influenced by Persia. And then I would move on to Persia. So I was, like, piggybacking from one culture to the next, and it ignited this fiery, fiery passion in history. And, like, I just kept on going further back in time, further back in time, and then I was like, you know, I want to learn more about what brought about this history that I love so much. Where did humans come from? How did we develop? And so that led me to actually go to college, and I got a degree in uh, anthropology, uh, where I studied uh, primate behavior, uh, human evolution, and actually paleoanthropology which is the study of fossils. And I even went so far as to dig for fossils in uh, Tanzania, which is an East African country. And that was amazing. It was during the summer of 2014. I was in Olduvai Gorge, which is one of the most famous fossil bearing sites on the planet. Like, and I was surrounded by wild giraffes and baboons. And it was just a super cool experience. You know, doing the anthropology stuff, it, it helped me combine my love for Sun Wukong and primates and history and all of this, all of this stuff here. So while I was also in college, I got minors in Chinese and art history, which has also helped me in my own research because all of 
you know, the, the religion, the history, all of the stuff is, uh, is very symbolic. And when you look at old religious paintings, uh, everything has meaning. So all of that has helped me greatly. So my Chinese, because I got a minor, was not the greatest in the world. And even though I was doing my, I was doing research for fun and I wanted to take it to the next level. So at some point years later in the year 2017, I said, you know what, I'm going to move to Taiwan in order to improve my Chinese. And I've been here for almost two years now. There have been several benefits to moving to Taiwan, obviously learning the Chinese language, but also uh, you know, because Sun Wukong is worshipped as a god, uh, there are some really cool uh, Sun Wukong temples here. He's worshipped here under the title the Great Sage, you know, equaling heaven. A lot of these temples don't even refer to him as Sun Wukong. They just call him the Great Sage. Since I'm in Asia, I can go visit other Monkey King temples. You know, I've been to uh, Hong Kong and visited Monkey King temples there. I had a friend from the UK who actually went to Fujian uh, province in southern China, which is where his uh, religion started. And he looked at all all of the different, like the really old Monkey King temples there. So it was really cool. You know, it's, it's really neat to be in Asia and seeing all of the stuff firsthand that the average lover of Journey to the West, they don't have access to. But the number one best part about moving here is that I met the love of my life. Uh, she's a wonderful girl who has enriched my life completely. And none of this, my current life, my research, everything, none of this would not have been possible without reading Journey to the West. Wow. There you go. That's a pretty big endorsement. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> All right. Hey, well, thanks for your time, man. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to learn more about Mr. McClanahan's work, visit journeytothewestresearch.wordpress.com. We've included a link to that website and the aforementioned survey on the Podbean and Brofisticate websites if you want to participate in the study. And if you'd like to spend a little more time on Chinese literature, you might check out In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 103, where we chat with author Lisa C. about her novel, The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbeam.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. <laughs> 